And hello, this is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. Well, I had one thing planned for today's show, but I changed that plan when I saw the news this past week that Frank Kameny had died. Frank Kameny was known to some as the founding father of the gay pride movement, very possibly the most important figure in the history of gay rights in this country. I got to know Frank a, a little bit when I talked to him back in 2010 for a show I ran on the 4th of July. It was a really memorable conversation for me because he was such a remarkable guy. He was 85 when I spoke to him, still sharp and funny and very much engaged in the cause that had occupied so much of his life, namely human rights. Frank had been agitating for gay equality going all the way back to the 1950s, and he really took up the fight after he was fired in 1957 from his Defense Department job. The charge was being homosexual which could get you dismissed from a lot of jobs in those days and certainly from positions in the U.S. government. But Frank did not take the firing lightly. In fact, he challenged it in court and uh, went on to fight and win a whole series of legal battles against anti-gay discrimination over the decades. In the past couple of days since his death, there has been a flood of articles and obituaries and tributes in the media. But I haven't uh, heard any interviews quite like the one I did with him which covered his whole life as an activist. So I wanted to play it again. And uh, by the way, this is a somewhat longer edit than I aired back in 2010. I was able to add back a few parts that I originally had to cut due to time constraints. So here's my conversation with Frank Kameny from July 2010. Well, Frank, um, tell me what you were doing on the 4th of July about, say, 40, 45 years ago. Well, a group of myself and a group of uh, gay rights activists were picketing in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia as a reminder day to the world in general that all of the high ideals of personal freedom set out in the Declaration of Independence uh, were still not being enjoyed by at least this one group of people here in America. Between 1965 and 1969, you and a group of fellow gay activists were picketing in front of Independence Hall on the 4th of July. Yes. And this was before there was even a gay rights movement. People didn't even refer to a gay rights movement at that point. Uh, uh, Well, yes and no. The gay movement, the gay rights movement, or as it was often called in those days, the homophile movement, started in 1951 out in California, Uh, I uh, got it going here in Washington, D.C., and there was a group in New York, uh, a chapter of one of the California groups. But uh, it was still a very, very tiny movement. When I got going in 61, there were five or six gay rights organizations in the entire country. So it was a small movement. We were pushing forward in untrodden territory. I'll say. I mean, this was a time in American history when to be gay was still to be branded a deviant, a pervert, uh, a threat to national security, a criminal, uh, someone with a mental illness, all of those. Yes, you've named a good many of the issues. (laughs) Uh, The psychiatrists still considered us uh, mentally and emotionally disturbed. We started uh, back in 62 or 63, we started what turned out to be a 10-year battle uh, to turn the psychiatrists around. We succeeded in that in 1973. 
um, the federal government, the civil, the then Civil Service Commission, the OPM now, same same organization, different name, uh, uh, had a uh, a policy of excluding gays from um, uh, federal employment as rigid and as ferociously enforced as the still existing policy of excluding gays from the military. Um, uh, Eisenhower's 1953 Executive Order 10450 denied security clearances to gays. We were, we started fighting. Nobody was doing anything really serious and effective in all of those issues. We started fighting them all um, uh, beginning in the early 60s and continuing on through uh, step by step by step until um, uh, we succeeded in, in most of them. You were picketing in front of this um, national monument on a national holiday at a time when there really weren't very many people in America who were openly gay. Yeah, no, there, there were very few simply because, in general, the situation was that if you were known to be gay, you never obtained or retained the job, or for that matter, the apartment. So that uh, there were only a very, very small number of us who were openly gay um, at that time. I uh, remember the Madison Society, which was a group I founded in Washington. Uh, we had a rule that uh, uh, people had to use pseudonyms, except only for me, for just that reason. Oh, really? So that your identities um, could not be easily found out? Uh, yes. So that um, it gets a slightly, a slightly more sophisticated. At least some of them worked for the government, had security clearances, and so on, and they didn't want to be known publicly. But at the same time, didn't want to be accused in using pseudonyms of thereby being susceptible to blackmail, which was a myth of the day. And uh, so we required everybody to use pseudonyms. Hmm. Well, I think it's fair to say that at this time, when you and your fellow activists uh, were staging these protests in a very visible way, it was dangerous to be known as gay. I mean, uh, homosexuality wasn't even discussed in polite circles. That's no, how... and of course, until 1961, when the first of the sodomy laws was repealed, uh, sodomy, uh, which of course is, uh, includes such things as all sex, was engaged in by heterosexuals as well, but it was always thought of only in homosexual terms, uh, was a felony in all states. So you could lose your job, um, you could be jailed, you could be certainly ostracized from society, you could be the victim of all kinds of, of persecution. Did you feel, you and your group, um, doing these protests, did you feel very alone at that time? Uh, well, I don't know that I can really respond in terms of my own emotions, I no, I didn't feel particularly alone, but uh, uh, we did have a uh, massive general and cultural resistance to face up to, and we felt that by picketing, uh, we were in fact facing up to it and hopefully causing, uh, bringing about uh, change. How, how many of there were you picketing in these demonstrations? Well, the very, very first one in Washington in April of '65. There were about 10 people. This was in front of the White House. In front of the White House. And this, I, I would be hard-pressed to give you numbers. Our last one in Washington in October of that year had, I, as I recall, 65 people, which 
in our view, was a huge demonstration. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that had people from uh, Chicago, New York, and elsewhere. And uh, my feeling is by the time we had our last one in 69 uh, in front of Independence Hall, we, we must have been up somewhere around, probably somewhere around 50 people. Mm. What was the reaction from the public and the news media? Well, uh, our very first demonstration, we didn't want to give the uh, bureaucrats an opportunity to find some sort of a technicality to prevent us from uh, doing it at all. So there was absolutely no publicity, uh, advanced publicity on our part for the very first one. After that, uh, we publicized them. The whole issue hasn't become an issue yet in those days. It was just barely beginning to the very first television program on the subject was neither 66 or 67, a one-hour program, and uh, it really wasn't that much of an issue. For most people, they didn't really realize quite what we were there for. Um, In Philadelphia, we had to uh, fight the police department uh, getting a a permit, uh, which we did. But uh, uh, in general, there wasn't all that much reaction. A lot of people didn't really quite realize what we were picketing about because it wasn't a public issue the way it has become. Uh huh. So the outrage or um, backlash that one might have expected really didn't happen? Um, only minimally. Minimally. Were you afraid, though? I never was. Uh, perhaps I, I can't speak uh, individually for each of the other uh, demonstrators. I tend to face up to people in the world, and I don't get afraid. I, uh, my feeling has always been that if people object uh, to things I'm doing, I'm right, they're wrong, and that's that, as long as they don't get in my way. If they do, I tend to, uh, uh, there will be a fight, and I tend not to lose my wars, and I fight the war. <laughs> well, I'm very interested in someone like you um, taking on a cause that really had few few people willing to stand up for it, and uh, when the consequences could be enormous, I mean, the negative consequences yes. for anybody taking this, this position. Um, when did you become active in gay rights? Well, basically, I took a job in 1957 with uh, what was then called the Army Map Service. It's changed its name. And uh, I was fired in late 57 because I was gay. I fought it all the way up to uh, the Supreme Court. I wrote my own uh, Supreme Court uh, petition in January 61, um, and which, to my knowledge, was the first gay rights legal brief ever filed anywhere. The Supreme Court not unexpectedly turned it down in March of that year, and uh, which ended my personal case. But at that point, I'd been faced with the issues. It was obvious that something had to be done so I proceeded to organize things here, and uh, I founded the movement here in late 61, and that ended up, in retrospect, being the initiation of gay activism and militancy for the whole country. I might point out that I had appealed administratively to the Civil Service Commission in 57. Sometimes the bureaucracy mows over things for a long time, and last year... After 52 years, the OPM gave me a beautiful letter apologizing to me for the government's shameful action 
in firing me 52 years earlier. 52 years after you were fired from the U.S. Army MAP Service, uh, the U.S. government formally apologized. Apologized to me in a very, very nice letter, yes. When you were fired in 1957 uh, by the government, um, first of all, how did they know you were gay in the first place? Uh, I was called in and was told by two civil service investigators and was told, uh, we have information that leads us to believe that you're homosexual. Do you have any comment? I said, what's the information? They said, we can't tell you. I said, well, then I can't comment. In any case, I don't think it's relevant. And those things then proceeded from there. Um, did they produce some kind of evidence then at some point? Not at that point, no. Were you openly gay at that point? Well, uh, people weren't open in those days. You have to keep in mind, you're going back um, over half a century. Things were culturally different. Nobody was open, or practically nobody. And, I mean, yes, I went to gay bars, things like that. Um, I wasn't cringing in a corner, but in the sense of being public about things, nobody was public about the, about this issue back in those times. So, Well, that, that, that's perhaps unfair to a, a, a small group of people at that point, mostly in California, who were uh, marginally uh, open. As I said, the movement was founded in 51, and there were a few people, but only a few, yes. So... The 1950s, when you had this job with the U.S. government and when you were fired, obviously this is the McCarthy era. Uh, people were being driven out of government jobs right and left for um, former communist associations, uh, for supposedly subversive activities, and um, being gay was, was considered a subversive activity. Uh, yes, and, and there's an excellent book that came out oh, two, three, four years ago or so, The Lavender Stare by uh, David Johnson, which uh, deals very specifically with uh, gays and government in the 50s, yes. When you were then fired, you fought back. Um, I mean, you pretty much, you know, by dint of that, that situation, became openly gay. Uh, in that sense, yes. And, uh, um, I mean, my case went to the uh, lower federal courts, the uh, or district court, the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, um, in, the, in the very latter 1950s, and as I said, uh, I ended up writing my own brief uh, for the Supreme Court, uh, which was filed around January 25th or so, 1961. Yes, of course, when the court turned it down two months later, there was a small article about it in uh, one of our D uh, D.C. newspapers, the Washington Star, which doesn't exist anymore, so that, yes, in a sense that, uh, if nothing else, uh, made it public. So, so you didn't deny being homosexual? I mean, when oh, they no. fired you? No, I don't think it's something to deny if it's a fact. Well, what's interesting is that at that time, people who were fired by the government for being gay or uh, who were caught up in police stings, let's say, who were arrested or otherwise you know, exposed as being gay. It was a scandal. Many people slunk off into anonymity. Right? Some of them still do. Some of them still do. <laughs> it still happens, absolutely, without a doubt. Um, and, and here we are in the McCarthy era, and, and you said there's nothing to be ashamed of and said you're going to fight this. Um, um, I'm just sort of fascinated by what kind of, you know, personal constitution well, uh, you let had. Well, let, let me put it to you differently. Okay. And in summary, um, over the years, a lot of people have 
urged me to write an autobiography. Maybe someday I will, although I suspect at my age I probably won't. But I have drafted a sort of a foreword. Somebody is, in fact, writing a biography, and uh, that will be there. And let me give you that, and it's going to answer your question in full. Sure. And that is, the one thing that I have absolute faith in is the validity of the product of my own intellectual processes. Therefore, if the world and I, or society and I, or the culture and I differ on something, I'll give it a second look and give them a second chance uh, to make their point. If we still differ, then, as I said earlier, I am right and they are wrong, and that is that, as long as they don't get in my way. If they do, there will be a fight, and I tend not to lose my wars. Therefore, over the years and the issues that I've decided to fight, you can't fight them all, I have chosen not to adjust myself to society, but with considerable success to adjust society to me. And society is much the better off for the adjustments I have administered. <laughs> that, that encapsulates the answer to your question. Well, well, the the disposition you just described is one that I think is shared by people who have a, a big impact on history. Yes. Uh, people who are now looked at as visionary and ahead of their time. Yes. But also, I mean, a few crazy people who thought they were right <laughs> when, in fact, they were they were really, really wrong. Um, how did you know you weren't? I mean, when you looked at the majority opinion at that time, the overwhelming majority opinion, you never wavered. No, because I was right and they were wrong. <laughs> Well, it, from those early days when you had, what, uh, a couple of dozen people accompanying you in these protests, into the 70s when the gay rights movement really came into its own, a, a rather, um, you know, gigantic change uh, in well, a very yeah, short amount of time. The, the turning point, of course, and I'm saying nothing novel, uh, was a Stonewall. We had tried all through the 60s to make a grassroots movement out of it. Without real success. There were five or six gay groups in uh, 61. They had grown to 50 or 60, which isn't all that much more, in uh, 69. What Stonewall did uh, was to convert that into an actual grassroots movement. Uh, by 1970, by some counts, there were a thousand or so gay groups in the country. By 1971, there were about 2,500, and people stopped counting. And so it was, that was a real transition, and I feel that our picketing demonstrations uh, prior to 69 uh, created the mindset which made Stonewall possible. It wouldn't have happened um, uh, without our demonstrations in the preceding five years. And you're listening to the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, your host. In this part of the hour, we're remembering the human rights activist, Frank Kameny, who died just this past week. He was one of the earliest and certainly one of the most important figures in the gay rights movement. So I've called him the father of the movement, in fact. And we're listening to an interview I did with him last year for the 4th of July. He was 85 at the time. Were those demonstrations that you held starting in 1965, were they the first public demonstrations in favor of, of gay rights? With one single exception that I know of. Uh, a year earlier in New York, uh, Randy Wicker and, and a small number of people 
had picketed, I think, a, a military recruiting center or something of the sort. Other than that, uh, our, ours were the first, yes. Um, and as I said, in 65, we, uh, we picketed the White House three times, the State Department, the Civil Service Commission, and the Pentagon, plus Independence Hall. Of course, around the same time, the civil rights movement was in full swing. It was increasing in intensity. The so-called 60s really came into full flower in the latter part of the calendar 60s and the early 70s. And so when we got going in 65, things were heating up, but uh, they still had a lot of heating to do in terms of of, 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 of past history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, did you take inspiration from the civil rights movement? Uh, very much. I was present in 63 at the famous uh, uh, Martin Luther King rally uh, on the Mall here in Washington in August of 63. I was there and uh, with a, uh, um, a gay rights sign. Oh, yes. Oh, you were? Oh, yes. In other words, I was there for his famous I Have a Dream speech. But at the same time, the civil rights movement was not real comfortable with no, we, the we gay had rights to do movement. No, we a lot of persuasion over the ensuing years. It was a slow, slow process, but there, but there was a slow but steady progress, yes. D- did you attempt to form an alliance, and was it rebuffed? To some degree, yes. And uh, our issue was still a, a very, very novel one uh, in those times, and people weren't thinking in those terms terribly much. And uh, some of them still aren't. You, you get what I uh, refer to endlessly as the nutty fundamentalists, the religious people who still haven't come to terms with us. Not at all. Um, did you know, by any chance, Bayard Rustin, uh, who, of course, was a, a key figure in the civil rights movement, a colleague of Martin Luther King, but who was also gay and was, uh, I guess, forced to resign from the Southern Christian Leadership yes. Conference because he was gay? No, I did not. I knew, certainly knew of him later, but at that time, no, I didn't. Mm. You say that it, it took quite a while. Uh, eventually, though, you were able to make some inroads with the civil rights movement? and, and... Uh, uh, Yes. There's still uh, very much a mixture of reactions um, from the whole black uh, civil rights community. And there are some places where we are comfortably accepted and uh, others who still don't. Was the uh, rejection, though, that you experienced in some cases, uh, was that hurtful? Uh, Again, um, I'll repeat, as I said (laughs) earlier, when I was giving you my basic statement of principle, I have absolute confidence in the validity of my own intellectual processes. Therefore, if they reject me, it's not for me to be hurt. I am right, and they are wrong, and that is that. End. Um, I don't react emotionally that way in a negative sense. I simply fight them back because I am right and they are wrong. And we are right as gay people and the homophobes are wrong. End of discussion. When you were fired um, from the government in 1957, you were an astronomer. You had a Ph.D. from Harvard. Yes. Um, You had also fought in World War II. Is that right? Uh, Yes. I was in uh, frontline combat in uh, Europe. Uh, in World War II. I might point out, incidentally, that while Don't Ask, Don't Tell Us is colloquially called what I call the military gay ban, uh, became statutory law 
1993, it was military policy uh, going very, very far back. And when I enlisted in the Army three days before my 18th birthday, on May 18th, 1943, uh, they asked. I didn't tell. And I have resented for 67 years that I had to lie to my government in order to participate in, in, in an effort that I strongly supported. Hmm. They, they asked, you didn't tell. In other words, you said... Hey, despite the fact that as a healthy, vigorous teenager, there were, there were some things to tell. Not all that much, but some. And uh, I didn't. Mm. So you, you did uh, ship out to, to the European theater in World War oh, II? Oh, yes. We, I fought uh, in Holland and, and uh, all across Germany. I, I was an 81-millimeter mortar crewman and uh, reached the exalted rank of Private First Class. <laughs> Were you part of the D-Day landing? No. I was doing uh, advanced training uh, here in, uh, uh, it's now Fort, it was then Camp Polk, Louisiana, with the 8th Armored Division, uh, with which I eventually went over. But uh, D-Day was uh, June 6, 44, and uh, we crossed um, in November of 44. Mm. Uh, initially went to England, then France, and then eventually got into combat in uh, uh, Holland in early 45. But that uh, service in the U.S. military in combat didn't uh, matter when it came to being dismissed for being gay from your job. No, 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 no. Uh, what did you do after losing your job, having spent your life up until that time as an astronomer? Uh, it became difficult, and uh, I had some funds initially, but there was a period of about eight months in uh, late 59 when I was living on 20 cents worth of food a day, 25 when I could afford a pat of butter, and while 20 cents went a lot farther in 1959 than it doesn't, 2010, uh, it was still uh, not easy. I got a series of jobs. Um, uh, my bachelor's degree is in physics, optics. I got a series of jobs in physics, but again, I couldn't get a security clearance, which meant that all through the 60s, um, these were third- and fourth-rate companies, which went from under me. And uh, a financial wizard, uh, I am not. <laughs> And uh, economics has never been my strong point. And uh, so that financially, um, as things have been difficult in, in a variety of ways over the ensuing decades and uh, are still significant problems even now, yes. But you, you got by, but you never again uh, worked as an astronomer? No. Hmm. Unfortunately, and for much of the 60s, I was a physicist from nine until five on weekdays, and a gay activist in the evenings and weekends. But gradually the gay activism took over, and the show became a kind of a full-time sort of thing uh, by the very late 60s and onward. Um, we talked a little bit about your own sense of confidence um, and conviction that you were right, and um, society and, go and the government... It's not a sense of conviction, it's fact. Okay, well, we've talked about your recognition that you were right. Fair. How's that? Fair enough. <laughs> um, but what did you say to, um, let's say, people you met who were gay but who were not so certain or who were afraid of, you know, demonstrating in public 
who were afraid for their careers, for their reputations. Did you ever counsel such people? Well, yes, and ultimately you have to deal uh, realistically with a particular uh, factual situation in each person's own life, and ultimately those are decisions which people have to make and, and must be allowed to make uh, for themselves individually. And, and what we did in all these decades was to try to make it more feasible to come out in the open. Now, for example, I made a personal project out of turning the Civil Service Commission around. It took me 18 years um, uh, through court decisions. I backed the Civil Service Commission into a corner, and in 1975, they reversed their policy. As you've just said, you helped uh, reverse the U.S. government's uh, policy on employing gay people. It's no longer a firing offense and hasn't been for quite some time, thanks to your efforts. Um, you helped. Well, now there, there are openly uh, there are organizations of openly gay employees in government agencies all all over the entire government. Yes. Right, and, and you helped uh, overturn sodomy laws in a number of places. Uh, yeah, yes, it took me, um, well, to be precise about it, uh, it took me 30 years, one month, four days, and approximately 11 hours to overturn the D.C. sodomy law, and I had the privilege of writing the text of the, of the repealer. Uh, and, and 10 years after that, of course, uh, the Supreme Court's decision in uh, uh, Lawrence versus Texas did it for the whole country. You've also uh, been instrumental, I understand, in, in helping to um, reverse government policies on security clearances for gay uh, yes. employees. Yes. Now, there, in April 1953, uh, Eisenhower issued Executive Order 10450, which uh, denied security clearances to uh, uh, people engaging in uh, what was called in, in the order sexual perversion. Now, the rationale for that was that supposedly we were subject to uh, coercion and pressure and blackmail. Now, in point of fact, in the entire history of Western espionage, there has been one case of submission by a gay person to blackmail because he was gay. That was Colonel Alfred Radel in the Austro-Hungarian Army in 1912, and gays have suffered because of Colonel Radel for just short of a full century. Uh, nevertheless, that was the philosophy in the 1950s, and that was uh, one of the bases for denying clearances to gay people. Well, we, we pushed on that over the years, and... Uh, in 1995, President Clinton issued Executive Order 12968, which, for these purposes, reversed Eisenhower's Executive Order 10450, and gays get clearances routinely now. Now, in the interval, I fought any number of cases uh, all over the government on security clearances. I ultimately became the authority in the country on security clearances for gay people. And uh, bit by bit by bit, we forced them back and uh, so that now uh, it's no longer an issue. So um, among the things you're credited with is helping to reverse anti-gay hiring and firing policies in the U.S. government, 
helping to overturn um, discriminatory security clearance policies that used to deny gay people security clearances for government jobs. You helped overturn the American Psychiatric Association's classification of homosexuality as a disease, and you've helped uh, get sodomy laws struck down. Yes. Um, and uh, I'm sure a number of other accomplishments as well. But from what I've read, the one thing you're most proud of is, is, is coining a particular phrase. Uh, yes. We had been uh, presented with an unmitigated, unrelenting negative assault, whether it was because we were sick or criminal or sinful or whatever. There was never an affirmative word coming through. Well, in uh, the early part of 1968, for much the same reason, the Sacco-Nerd dynamics were identical, the slogan, Black is Beautiful, was coined. And I decided we needed very much the same thing, uh, the equivalent for us. So in July 1968, I coined the slogan, Gay is Good, and if I'm remembered for nothing else after I'm gone... Uh, I want to be remembered for that. Why, why uh, with all those other major accomplishments, is, is, that, is that your favorite? Because underneath, conceptually, it underlies everything else. If gay isn't good, then all the rest of it uh, begins, uh, significantly loses its rationale. And uh, uh, this provides conceptually, the rationale for everything else is not merely that gay is not bad, but the next step over. Gay is affirmatively good, and therefore all other things that are gay must be given full affirmative treatment. Hmm. Now, you said um, in the old days it, it was actually called the homophile movement. Um, when did it become gay rights? When was that phrase used? Well, all right, the word gay, while it has existed inside the gay community going very, very, very far back. Uh, I first heard it in the 1950s among other gay people, but it was not known publicly at all um, until very roughly 1970 or 1971, right after Stonewall. And uh, it came out into general public uh, knowledge and usage, so it's now a fully standard uh, synonym, both as noun and adjective, for homosexual. And uh, so uh, the movement, uh, which we had called, at least some people had, the homophile movement, uh, simply became what it generally now is, the gay rights movement. So you've now participated in that movement for going on 60 years. You said you started in the early 50s. Uh, well, in terms of the movement itself, uh, I was involved in a formal sense since 1961. I was in touch with, the, after I was fired in 57, I was in touch with the movement such as it was uh, uh, back then. But I've been actually involved in the movement since 61. Yes. So looking back over these past 50 years that you've been involved in, in gay rights, what's your perspective on how far you've come and, and how far there is to go? Well, uh We've come beyond anything we could possibly have imagined back in the 60s. I mean, we were picketing in front of a hostile White House in 1965, and I was an honored guest inside the White House with the president um, in 2009. 
and when they uh, had a uh, reception to commemorate Stonewall. And uh, uh, so that we could never conceivably have imagined that. But there is still a lot of negativism and hostility, particularly from the religious community. Uh, there are still issue, genuine issues that are working their way out but uh, haven't worked their way out yet. Uh, the whole question of same-sex marriage, um, which was a very new issue. It wasn't thought of back then when I got into things. Gays in the military, um, uh, and so on. There will always be the issues. Racism is still alive in this country, um, and always will be to some degree. These prejudices, these bigotries exist, and they don't go away totally. And we still have to continue pushing. In general, uh, the tide is very, very much with us. There will be occasional, I'm sure, nasty uh, losses now and then, but um, uh, things are moving ahead. At the age of 85, I don't know how much more I'll be around to see, but I'm certainly looking forward to it. <laughs> what are you doing on this 4th of July? I will be participating. In fact, I was just on the phone about this to make arrangements, final arrangements this morning. I will be participating in the city of Philadelphia's 4th of July parade, along with a couple of other gay activists. Well, Frank, thanks so much for talking to us today and um, catching us up on, on, on your own history and history of the gay rights movement. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Frank Kameny, who died this past week at the age of 86, he died on National Coming Out Day, and just a few weeks after the U.S. military's Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy ended. This is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And we've got a little time left in the hour, so I thought I'd offer up another interview, part of an interview, that I thought was uh, companionable with the Frank Kameny interview in the first part of the show. This is from a conversation I had uh, in 2009 with the former track star John Carlos. He's famous for having won the bronze medal in the 200-meter race at the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico City. But he's even more famous for a protest he staged during the medal ceremony with the gold medal winner, Tommy Smith. As they stood on that medal podium, they both raised their fists in a black power salute. Uh, it was a gesture intended to protest racial inequality in the United States and racism in sports in general. The uh, protest was organized by the Olympic Project for Human Rights, which was headed by the sociologist Harry Edwards at San Jose State University which is where both John Carlos and Tommy Smith had gone to college. And as a result of those raised fists, both Carlos and Smith were expelled from the Olympics and were shunned by the sports establishment for years afterwards. They both knew they were taking big risks when they planned that surprise demonstration, and there was quite a bit of tension in the days and hours leading up to that moment. Um, what was the feeling there as you approached uh, the victory stand? Uh, you know, let's get the show on the road. That's, that was the most prevalent feeling for, for all of us. Let's do this. There had been a big build-up. You wanted to get it get it done. Well, uh, that's the main focus of me going to the games was to do the uh, demonstration. You know, as far as the medal was concerned, I just had to win a medal to, to get on the victory stand. So the medal was sort of a means to an end. Right. You had to win one of the three medals in order to do what you had to do. There had been um, speculation that other athletes would do something even prior to you guys, but really nothing much had happened. Well, you know, first of all, man, let me just say this to you. Uh, it takes a tremendous amount of courage, man, to 
to first of all make the conviction to yourself that that yes, I'm satisfied with my uh, uh, decision in terms of making a statement, and then it takes an enormous amount of more courage to actually go out and make this statement. So you know, a lot of people just didn't have uh, the courage enough in them to do it, and then they use whatever uh, they could use. Uh, to, to dissipate, to get away from it, mm-hmm. uh, such as I promised my coach I was going to win, I promised my community, my parents, I've been training all my life. And, you know, we knock, we're not knocking any of those individuals for the stance that they took. They was entitled to it. All we wanted to do was try and make everyone have a better understanding as to why we thought it was necessary to, to boycott the Olympic Games or, or to make some sort of public statement. And um, you guys knew full well, there would be consequences. I mean, you weren't under any illusion that it was going to be easy. Well, you know, the, the ultimate consequence was, you know, our lives, because our lives was threatened for two and a half years, three years. Who who was it that was threatening your lives? Racists. Just just sort of freelance racists calling you or, or sending letters? Letters and telegrams and all kinds of stuff. And they had... Um, they had done some pretty horrible things uh, along with the threats. I mean, the Harry Edwards, you know, the man at San Jose State uh, who um, helped organize these protests, that someone had, as a way of warning him, had killed his dogs? Uh, it wasn't his dog, actually. They just found a dog, a big black German Shepherd, and uh, he stabbed the dog up and left him in his doorway. Were those guys ever caught? No. No. They never catch him. You know, you have to take into account, man, this was in 1968. And, and you have to take into account that a lot of the races that I might be talking about today were woven into the, into the fabric of society at that particular time. A lot of them worked for the government. You know, a lot of them worked for city, state, and federal governments, agencies. Uh, a lot of them were just grassroots people from the streets. So, I mean, you know, racism was, was on the front page real strong at that particular time. And as I said, they were woven into the various agencies of this country. So at that moment, knowing about the threats, at that moment, uh, you know, when the national anthem starts playing and you and Tommy raised your, your fists, um, bowed your heads, um, were you guys thinking, you know, this might be it? Uh, well, what I was thinking about was a vision that I had when I was a kid. That's the first thing that came to my mind. When I was a kid, God showed me in a stadium on a box and, and showed me that everyone was, a, was extremely happy about something that I did because he didn't show me what I did. He just showed me in the stadium on this box. And in a split second, it turned to anger. And that happened 15 years before I actually reached the victory stand in Mexico. You were about seven then. Seven, eight years old, right. That's, that's, an, amazing, um, that's an amazing thing. You... It truly is amazing. It's almost like, uh, you, you know, you, you're in the war, man, and all your buddies get killed, and you want to know why did God spare you. You know, so it's, it's the same difference. You know, you say something as monumental as this, why did God choose me to be a part of this? And, and why do you think? Uh, I don't know. Uh-huh. Something that I would have to put to him one day. <laughs> um, so you had this vision at seven or eight years old of, 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 of doing something that was considered really impressive, but then the uh, the joy turned to hate. Well, it did the same thing it did in the vision. Yeah, and, and, and then this indeed did come true. I mean, after the Olympics... Just tell me about some of the consequences for, for your life and, and for the life of Tommy Smith. Well, you know, like, let's say this, man. It was sunshine and, and, and good times, and then it changed to thunder and lightning and, and, and very negative. 
hard time getting jobs? People wouldn't hire you? Uh, you couldn't find a job anywhere. You know, uh, um, for the better part of 15 years, man, I had the big bar and steel. And um, you make a reference in the film to what happened to, to, your, to your wife at the time. Absolutely. Yeah, my wife just couldn't take no more. And the uh, only way she saw out was to take her life. And as much as I feel for my wife, I feel even more for my kids. And I don't know whether you saw the documentary Return to Mexico, but that's still a sore spot with me. And uh, if I say I was to ever change anything in my life, that would probably be the thing that I would change in terms of safeguarding my family better than I did at that time. What happened to your children? Well, my kids were scorned in school because uh, I was their dad. Uh, you know, they couldn't have the things that normal kids have, you know, at Christmas time or on their birthdays. Uh, it was it was rough times. The food wasn't as, as plentiful as they needed as, as young kids growing up. Uh, I remember I used to wake them up in the middle of the night and tell them to go take all their belongings out of their little dresser drawers and break their drawers up and have them go sleep around the fireplace and throw all the wood in the fireplace because we couldn't afford to pay the electric bill for heat. So, I mean, they remember all of these things. Now, over the years, attitudes changed. I mean, uh, we look back now, and there's a there's statue to you and Tommy Smith on the San Jose State campus. You've been honored in many ways. Well, I don't know whether the statue, uh, you know, uh, attitudes change. The statue on the San Jose State campus came about because of the young minds on that campus. The, the Student Body Association uh, worked, went to work to raise the money and, and find the artist to establish this statue. It wasn't just, say, the open faculty of San Jose State did it. So, you know, relative to attitudes changing, uh, I think time changes everything. You know, uh, it's whether they have a better understanding today, uh, I think the verdict is still out on that. Because uh, relative to what we're receiving and what we should have received a long time ago, we still we still not won on that just yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does it ever feel a bit hypocritical that, you know, the official side of America that did its best in some ways to, to end your career after the 68 Olympics now occasionally treats you like, oh, you were always one of ours, you know, you were, you're, we're proud of you and all of that. Is there, is there something, you know, a little two-faced about that, you think? Oh, yeah, it's just the way the system is. You know, I mean, you sit back, you think about all the various shows that they have on TV and so many ways they let young individuals make money. And uh, here's Mrs. Smith and I have done something that was so monumental and done it in the right vein. Uh, they don't set us up to make the money. You know, we still have them going on the Oprah Winfrey show and sat down and talked to Oprah Winfrey about, you know, the why, where, and what's of Mexico City. Uh, so it's still a lot of people that has that attitude that uh, if they associate with us, with us uh it's, it's a bad reflection on them. This ain't the Oprah Winfrey show. Um, it's a lot smaller, but uh, I want to give you this opportunity. Is there anything from that period of history that you think people still don't understand that, that maybe you could take this opportunity to tell us about? Well, first of all, I'd like people to understand that, uh, you know, what we did in Mexico City wasn't about medals. It was about human beings and, and, and the human race. And, and we wasn't taking sides in terms of saying I'm a black race, I'm, I'm of the black race, or white race, or, or whatever race, uh, other than the fact that we were saying we're part of the human race and we expect to be treated as human beings. Uh, I think that many blacks and people of color prior to that time have, have been treated as substandard citizens uh, of, of this great country in which we live. Uh, you know, we had to do something to, 
to try and shock people into reality, and, and that's what it was all about, to, to wake people up, you know, to resurrect people's consciences uh, because many consciences have gone to sleep. Uh, so that's what it was about. It wasn't in, in, in a violent sort of way. We didn't have any disdain in terms of trying to tear the country down or, uh, burn the country up or anything of that sort, which the media was trying to express to the people that, like, we were two, two, two-headed dragons spitting fire and, and we were anti-white and we are just so cold-hearted militants and that kind of thing. That's the way that we were depicted. We never had an opportunity to express that these things were just falsities. John Carlos, recorded in 2009. And that's it for the 7th Avenue Project this time around. We'll be back for another go a week from now, Sunday at noon. Please join us.